Welcome to What the Midwife Said, the podcast that's all about how babies and families are made. My name is Leah Hazard. I'm a mother, author of the best-selling memoir, Hard Pushed, and I'm the midwife, in case you were wondering. In this series, I'm having honest conversations with some incredible guests, taking a deep dive headfirst into their experiences of fertility, pregnancy, birth, and parenting. That sheer <laughs> being in your mind and in your body and in a horrible place, and then once, one second it's just done. Yeah, and right before it's done, you really want to poo yourself as well. <laughs> yeah, you do. It's so grim. It sounds like like, like a version of Wonder Woman lightning crotch. I quite like the idea of that. Perhaps that's my alter ego. Oh, I'm so ready. I'm going to be a woman. I'm going to have a baby. <laughs> and Jamie's like, calm down. I'm like, no, but I'm ready. And my mummy said to me when I said no, she went, look, lol, if they are offering you this. It means I think you're going to live and it means I think you've got a future. Yeah, you think, how am I going to squeeze out a whole <laughs> other organism from that small place the first time round, it was i was saying to the midwife hey i feel like i need to push i need to push something's just you know and mm. it was a lot of no don't push you're gonna reverse everything stop pushing stop literally shouting at me i've walked out onto stage in front of thousands of people i've you know i've done all sorts of crazy stuff and my thing before i do anything scary is you've grown two humans in your body nothing scarier than that We're exploring the way we see our bodies and our relationships, the choices we make as we build our families, and the highs and lows that those choices can bring. No judgment and no shame. Just what the midwife said. And I want you to join the conversation too. If you have any questions or you'd like to share your experiences, you can find me on social media at Leah Hazard on Instagram or at Hazard underscore Leah on Twitter. Just include the hashtag, what the midwife said. Today's guest is Catherine May, an author who's written movingly about the challenges of being a woman, a mother, and a human at this strange time in our history. In The Electricity of Every Living Thing, Catherine explored her journey to being diagnosed with autism as an adult, and how that helped her make sense of who she is and how she navigates the world. Her latest book, Wintering, is a thoughtful, beautiful guide to thriving in life's darkest seasons. She's also edited an anthology about motherhood, The Best Most Awful Job, for which I wrote a chapter about, guess what, vaginas. Very on brand. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce one of my favourite people, Catherine May. Catherine, it's so lovely to speak to you. Thank you again for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Absolute pleasure. And when you say here, now, (laughs) before lovely producer Steve pressed record, you were giving me uh, a little sort of virtual mystery tour of your podcasting slash interviewing studio. Can you share that with the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So um, because of lockdown, my mother normally comes to stay for kind of three months at a time, Um, but we have a, a free spare room. And I'm doing a lot of book publicity the next couple of weeks. So I've converted, or my husband has converted the spare room into a little recording studio for me, which means that I can just sit down and record. But I have around me, very glamorously, um, mattresses gaffer taped to the wall to absorb the sound. (laughs) It sounds like some sort of hideous sort of room where where you'd get sort of stolen away and kept (laughs) for years and years. It's (laughs) my padded cell. It really is, isn't it? Very glamorous. People have no idea how glamorous the life of an author is, really, do they, Catherine? Oh, my goodness. I mean, actually, it's so nice to be able to just have a really good conversation without putting a duvet over your head or something like that, <laughs> as, as I've been reduced to before. So yeah. this does feel genuinely luxurious. I've got a cup of coffee. I'm really happy. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I must. this is actually the second podcast we've done together, and the first one was yours. Yes. Um, but quite a few moons ago, the wintering sessions. And at that point, I was in my cupboard. I was, <laughs> I had my um, headphones on and I was in between many, many jumpers and jackets. And I'm pleased to say that I have now upgraded to the space underneath my daughter's bunk bed. Ooh. So I'm moving up in the world. And normally we record these podcasts. Well, the last few ones we've tended to do in the morning, just after my youngest has left for school. Mm. So I've still been in my pajamas, but I'm happy to say um, it's now half past two and I am 
dressed, which is a miracle. That's amazing. You are doing so well. I should really um, speak to you in my serious podcasting voice (laughs) about (laughs) the work that you've been doing, which is equally bracing and fresh and exciting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your book, Wintering, was published in the UK, obviously, to great acclaim, rightfully so. And Am I Right in Thinking was released in the US and Canada yesterday? Yes, US and Canada yesterday. I feel like I've waited so long for that. They um, acquired the book over a year ago. And there wasn't enough time to publish it at the same time as the UK one. And I just, I feel like I've been waiting all this time. I've been so excited about it because it's my first US release. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm delighted it came out in the US yesterday. Yay! Yeah, it's amazing. It's yeah. so exciting. And I'm sure you're very modest and wouldn't mention it. But this book has also just been voted the top pick amongst US independent booksellers for December. Is that right? Yes, it has. And and voted, which is the thing that's really exciting me. They've chosen it. And so it was lovely yesterday watching all the kind of Instagram posts and tweets flood in from the booksellers because they're really excited to sell the book. So I know it's immensely flattering. It's so lovely. Oh, you absolutely deserve it. Now, I have obviously read Wintering and loved it. But for a lot of people who are listening to this podcast, they may not be people who have come to us from sort of book world. Mm. Um, a lot of people who come to this podcast may, may well have come to us from sort of midwifey, birthy, parenting world. Um, so can you tell us briefly a little bit about the concept of wintering and what that means to you as you explore it in the book? Yeah. So wintering is the idea that all of us have these seasons in our life when we feel frozen or out in the cold, like when we've dropped through the cracks um, and we feel very isolated. It might be that we feel kind of humiliated or rejected. It might come after a big life event like uh, a divorce, for example, or an illness. Um, I think it very commonly comes in early motherhood, actually. And I'm sure we can talk about that. Yes, you're doing my work for me. I love it. I love it. But yeah, so the idea is that we all have these periods in our life. They might be for different reasons, but we actually have the experience in common. And that's actually a a moment when space opens up in our life for us to reflect and and sort of reimagine life in the future. But at the same time, it's a song to my love of winter because I am a big winter fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it is a special time and your love of winter comes through in the book beautifully and vividly. And of course, you could never have predicted what an awful time this year would be for so many people and what a kind of deep, dark winter we would have ahead of us. Um, but your book about seeking light and solace and development in life's darkest season seems so timely. Um, mm-hmm. And I think mothers and women in general have been hit particularly hard by the social and emotional challenges of this year oh, goodness, as a yeah. group. Yeah. And we've yeah. we've buckled down to some serious wintering. Would you agree? I really would. And I think, you know, we're beginning to understand that we're having a, a kind of a mass wintering. But despite the fact it's happening to all of us at once, that doesn't mean to say we're experiencing any more community around it. We're still all feeling very isolated in our individual winters. I mean, you know, watching all the stories about women who've had to give birth alone and things like that at the beginning of lockdown was really heartbreaking. And I I know you've been actively managing, you know, really changed circumstances Mm -hmm. for loads of people. Motherhood has always been a difficult time. You know, we've never talked about that very much before, but we're beginning to acknowledge how tough it is for so many people. But this year with homeschooling and the kind of pressures that it's put relationships under and stressed children and all of those things, I think mothers have had a a really, really tough time. I think they have. And I think no matter how resilient we like to think we are or what great support networks we have, even if we're lucky enough to have them, it's been an incredibly difficult time. I mean, mm. have you found that? Obviously, you've you've got a son. Um, we spent a lot of time, you know, doing our own little projects. We quite like, you know, doing arty things together. Um, and that I think that really helped. I think we had an easier transition than other people, frankly. Yeah, I mean, that's generous of you. But then we shouldn't underplay your own challenges as well because as you've said you 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 took you took your son out of school previously for for reasons you you can share if you want to or not but this time obviously it wasn't your choice as such to come away from the sort of infrastructure of the school so did it have a slightly different tone to it for you this time yeah I mean so the last time I took him out of school it was because he'd 
grown so stressed in school that we just didn't feel like he could cope with it anymore. Um, And we couldn't cope with the effect it was having on him either. We couldn't manage that for him. We couldn't find a way to help him through it. And so we made the decision to homeschool him. Um, He was at the end of infant school. So basically we homeschooled him until he could go back into juniors and change schools rather than um, change school for him like for six months. It didn't seem worth it. Um, I mean, I guess that didn't actually feel like a choice at the time either. It just felt like the only reasonable thing we could do for him because we couldn't keep forcing him into a situation that was making him so unhappy. Um, This time, in a way, I felt a little bit more optimistic about it because he wasn't as broken when he went into it. And as I say, we felt like we had a little bit of expertise in it between Mm -hmm. the two of us. Um, We'd, you know, we'd learned some stuff in that last period. We'd learned to you know, let things go wrong sometimes. And, um, you know, he and I now have this catchphrase where we can just look at each other and go, well, that went well and giggle. We've got a system whereby we can screw up and where we let each other off sometimes. And that means that when we're homeschooling, sometimes we both knew we were both sick of each other. And so we'd just watch telly for a while. And that's absolutely fine because Mm -hmm. no parent was ever meant to do what parents had to do this year in such isolation, under such pressure, with so many fears unfolding around them, you know, you've got to be so kind to yourself, haven't you? Yeah, you really do have to try. And for me, I mean, I was in a slightly different situation with my girls, one of whom was finishing up sixth year, about to go off to uni. And my youngest one was finishing off second year. She's just turned 14. So it was really the younger one that was homeschooling. And Mm. at first she was kind of up in her room and she was very independent, just doing things herself. And then one night she said, you know, it's actually quite, lonely up here in my room by myself yeah. while you sit with me at the table and I, I said of course oh, I had no idea that she wanted me to actually do it with her so for the remaining whatever six weeks or month it was left of the school year I sat with her at the kitchen table for a good kind of six seven hours a day Oof. and <laughs> yeah my, my back did not thank me for that one <laughs> I am old um but that really intense one-on-one kind of solo mothering Mm. to me and I should add it was because my husband was working not because he didn't give a toss but that (laughs) that kind of um intense intimacy and striving in a way reminded me of when they're really tiny Mm. and they're little babies and all of a sudden you're you're at home with them and it's just you and you're just trying to get through and interestingly I mean we've spoken about this a little bit before that period of motherhood to me is wintering I really agree. That that incredibly intense time when you know that your full attention has got to be on your child all the time because they need that feedback from you. And also because, um, you know, you can't be looking elsewhere. You've got to be totally engaging them. You're trying to keep them safe all the time. You know, they're, they're all over the place. They're pulling stuff down. They're falling over. <laughs> and your attention is just sucked out of you all day. And there just feels like... I used to I used to kind of run out of gas. I, felt, I used to feel like a toy that had run down, you know, like that my mm. kid gradually winded down. And I would find myself staring at him and thinking, I, I have got nothing else to say. I can't carry on with these games. I can't keep up these fantasies that we're supposed to engage in together. Like literally, I have got nothing else. You have emptied my brain for today. I just need someone to take you for an mm. hour so mm. that I can remember who I am. I I was not good at that phase. I I so admire people that are really brilliant at interacting with small children. I just found it horrible. I was rubbish at it. <laughs> yeah, it's a grind. There's no doubt. It is a grind. It's relentless. It's repetitive quite often. Um, and it's really difficult. And I think so many of us have this fantasy of that that wonderful mum who is so good with young children and who oh. really thrives at that time. But I think those women are like hen's teeth, actually. Yeah. I mean, I know I have some friends who are those women and they're amazing and it's an innate skill that they've got and they love it. Whereas I was, I, you know, I think for a lot of creative people, that early motherhood phase is devastating, actually, because when we're kept from our creative work, we feel like we're not able to be fully human almost it's a real loss um and I you know like I I had to accept that I just didn't have that skill set and I couldn't organize my way into it and for me childcare nursery care was just an absolute godsend I just Mm -hmm. 
when it came to the time for him to leave nursery, I was in pieces because I felt like they'd supported me through this really difficult time in my life. And he'd got so much out of it too. They'd done so much better than I ever could. And they'd let me have the relationship with him that was good enough for both of us, that we could both enjoy our time together. And he didn't have to deal with me being kind of frustrated and unhappy all the time, really. Mm-hmm. I was also really bad at the mother social life. I was really terrible at mummy oh, socialising. It's like dating all over again. Oh, isn't it? Yes. Oh, yeah, it's like, yes, it's the worst parts of school and dating overlapped. It's like mm. this Venn diagram from hell, isn't it? I'm right there with you because to me, it's like school because you're trying to sort of edge into the popular group of sort of like the cool looking mums but it's also like being single because you're sort of eyeing up a mum in the playground being like oh I like her top do you think we would have anything to talk about or you know we've we've sat by the swings and chatted for 10 minutes should I give her my number did you you feel the same yeah I mean I I felt very avoidant of the kind of organized fun for mummies you know like the the mother and baby groups and stuff when everyone is literally talking about their children I'd be thinking I don't want to talk about my children let alone or my child let alone your children love I really I've got I'm living this all day I've got nothing to say about it and I hated the little edge of competitivity in there you know Mm -hmm. I gave up breastfeeding really really early for loads of very good reasons in my opinion um partly because I wasn't making any milk and I didn't want to sit for hours with somebody trying to make me make some milk. Um, and I that that actually led to quite a lot of judgment that I received from new mothers who were probably feeling massively insecure about how they were handling it. And, and you know, I was like an easy scapegoat. I had mm. one woman who I, you know, uh, she came up to me and said, oh, isn't breastfeeding hard? We clearly have babies exactly the same size. And I said, oh, I'm not really doing it anymore. And she walked off. She just turned around and walked away. <laughs> and I was wow. Like, okay. So it really was o- overt, explicit judgment and not yeah. just, I think they're all judging me. No, no. That was, know, I mean, looks. that was the most extreme moment, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, like loads of women, I had people walking up to me, random strangers in the shop saying, I hope you're breastfeeding. <laughs> but I didn't God. really care about them. Um, yeah. But, you know, I also had an old lady walk up to me in a shop and say, you've got him in a green cardigan. That's unlucky. I can't believe you'd dress a baby in green. I mean, what do you do with these people? They've just got such strong opinions about everything. Why does everyone feel so free to judge? I mean, Mm. it's just... I'm so sorry you were on the receiving end of all that because it's um is difficult to be resilient when when you get these kind of comments over and over and over again, especially if you already don't feel like you're really thriving at that stage and particularly when you know I mean so I mean the the bigger story for me is that my experiences of early motherhood led led me to finally get an autism diagnosis which I'd never had before and one of the reasons that breastfeeding didn't work for me is because I because of sensory overwhelm I just really struggled with the level of physical contact I was having all the time and I needed to find a way to balance it for myself so that I didn't completely tip over into meltdown all the time but I'd had a really brilliant midwife who I'd you know talked through the process with and who'd advised me that I was doing absolutely the right thing and so I didn't really care about random strangers opinion because I'd had a brilliant professional helping me with my specific experience of motherhood and who'd been immensely wise and supportive about it and I'd felt really good about the decisions I was making um, so in lots of ways it kind of rolled off me but it did mean that I felt like I wanted to avoid those maternal you know events where Mm -hmm. I knew I'd feel out of place and kind of slightly wrong and and slightly like the degraded mummy who'd who'd got it all badly wrong Mm. Um, that's fascinating and you know you really are in so many ways the ideal podcast guest because that was my next question (laughs) (laughs) I'm literally looking at it on the page um because you wrote about your journey to being diagnosed with autism as an adult Mm. in your book the electricity of every living thing brilliant yeah. recommend it um and how this made kind of certain pieces of your identity fall into place and it fascinated me how that would sort of um inform your experience as a mother but i never even considered that your feeding choices could possibly be influenced by 
your perception of as you say sensory overload I think mm. a lot of mums can relate to that feeling of being touched out yeah but, yeah. Um, but that's fascinating to me yeah I mean I think you know I think mothers who are not autistic get touched out and 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 like get exhausted from the sound of the baby crying as well like that's a really familiar experience um if you're autistic that's turned up a hundred times um and I yeah I, I certainly did struggle with the constant physical contact I wanted to do the absolute best for him I wanted to hold him when he wanted to be held um, but actually he is similar to me in that he got exhausted by touch as well. And so whereas I've been told by so many people, you know, he'll want to be held all the time, you've got to carry him in a sling. Whenever I tried a sling, he'd get distressed. He hated it. It was too much for him too. And I, I was glad about that because it was also too much for me. Mm-hmm. And so we were very happily quite separate. Like he would, he loved lying next to me in his Moses basket and he'd be really relaxed then and you could see him let out a breath when he was put down quite often um Mm. and so loads of the standard advice didn't apply to me and that have been that's been always my experience actually and I think that's the experience of a lot of autistic people that you know we hear mainstream advice and we know that that doesn't work for us and we're constantly trying to make it up for ourselves and I I I definitely had to invent my version of early motherhood to to suit me Mm mm-hmm and that makes sense. And before we kind of get on to what mothers with autism maybe need from their professionals and from their peers, what what do you think are some of the commonly held social beliefs about mothers with autism and what they may or may not feel or may or may not want to do? What, what's been your experience? Oh, well, of course, there's this, um, there's the awful Bruno Bettelheim um, sort of trope, which was based on no research at all. Um, which said that autism arose from refrigerator mothers. Um, that that was published in the 50s and it endured for ages. And, and autistic mothers still hear that now, that we can't possibly um, be warm enough to look after our children. That is such a slander, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. I know loads and loads of autistic mothers and they are the most devoted parents I know of all because they've often got autistic children themselves and they are the ones who are finding and fighting away through life for their children who are struggling more than your average child so these are these are people who you know carry a double burden of motherhood and don't have the luxury of you know the the mother books to fall back on because they don't see themselves in it um, and I, you know, like when I was doing publicity for the electricity of every living thing, I remember having um, one woman put her hand up in the audience and very sweetly smiling me saying, oh, I admire you so much. This is such a wonderful book. I love it. Can I just ask you one thing? Are you able to love your son? And mm. I just, I remember feeling, I felt like I was going to burst into tears. It was such a horrible thing to ask me, like after listening to me for an hour and reading my book, her mm-hmm stereotype perception had still taken over and she still couldn't quite believe that I was human enough to feel love for my child and you're constantly dealing with those questions and assumptions and it makes you very wary of talking to professionals about it because you're afraid that that all of those prejudices are going to just drop into place as soon as they know it's frightening Mm. It must be exhausting mm. to deal with that. I mean, for, for somebody to ask you whether you're even capable of loving your child is the fundamental insult to, to a mother, isn't it? Really, it's so undermining. Yeah. And the idea, uh, you know, for this person, they I could tell that they didn't think it was an insult. They They thought it was a genuine, innocent, open question that they were perfectly allowed to ask me. Mm. And we've got such a long way to go because even people who have learned about autism in, you know, university, I mean, I studied psychology. I learned about autism. I learned so much wrong stuff about it because it's only in very, very recent years that we've started actually engaging autistic people as part of the research. And it's tipped our perception on its head about what we actually are. And it's opened up diagnostic pathways to people like me who who previously would have been completely invisible and who mm-hmm. struggled through life feeling incredibly different and, you know, falling down at every major kind of change in life. Um, and, and, I would not have been able to have been diagnosed much before the time when I actually was when I was 39. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it's good, as you say, that we are becoming a bit more aware of neurodiversity and mm -hmm. the many different ways that somebody can present with autism um, and the spectrum of these kinds of things. And it's great that you had a midwife, as you said, who seemed to recognise those needs when you were dealing with your feeding choices and so on and supported mm. you. But do you think, I mean, I'm really interested in going back sort of during your pregnancy and things. Do you think um, being a mum with autism affected your journey through the system when you were pregnant and giving birth? Yeah. And of course, I didn't know I was autistic at that time, which uh -huh. um, would have that would have helped a lot, actually, because it would have helped me to understand what I was going through. I had a really difficult pregnancy. Um, I I bled for the whole first trimester. Um, so that was a you know very kind of frightening time. I think I had my first scan at five weeks or something like that. Mm. So I was yeah, having kind hard. of weekly. Yeah, it was. And so that was very anxious. But I I was I had nausea through the whole pregnancy. I had very high blood pressure. I developed pregnancy asthma. <laughs> like oh I just, no, you ticked every box. Yeah, and I kept uh, I kept getting terrible chest pains that radiated down my left arm. So I kept being rushed into oh, hospital. Catherine. I was I was a yeah. nightmare. They didn't know what to do with me. Uh -huh. um, and I kept but having... scary at the best of times, let alone if you have a tendency to feel overwhelmed or overloaded yeah. or you know hard to navigate yeah. these systems. Absolutely. And the hospital ward is absolutely the wrong place for me because, I, you know, it's, it's noisy, it's chaotic, it's hot, it smells wrong. And so I was just constantly trying to cope with changing environments. I, and, I, you know, it was I was overwhelmed the whole time. I felt ill the whole time. I couldn't work. I couldn't think. And I think now that was due to complete sensory overwhelm like everything felt wrong it was really uncomfortable so for you the hospital environment was really the worst possible combination of all the things that kind of triggered yeah. you is that fair to say absolutely and you know it's the last place I wanted to give birth I really wanted to have a home birth but of course with my whole health <laughs> profile you know my midwife said early on you know, you know, you can't possibly give birth at home, don't you? And I was kind of like, yeah, I can see that. So was it very much a sort of you were told rather than it was even discussed? Well, it was I think it I think it was a common it was a shared understanding, actually. I mean, you know, the, the way the wind was blowing for me was really that I was, you know, would be lucky not to spend the last few months in hospital. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I'm I was ready to be deeply pragmatic about it. I didn't come into the whole experience with, you know, the kind of perfect birth plan where I was hoping for, um, you know, candles and angels singing. Um, and I, but I would yeah, have We loved... don't do that on the NHS anyway. No, so you're fine. I, know, <laughs> I think it's actually quite healthy to be slight, to have lower expectations. I mean, I, I already uh -huh. knew that all the women in my family, except for my mother who gave birth in three hours flat, but everybody else had taken three days um, and so I was kind of ready for it not to be amazing. And I think that helped me a lot, actually. My expectations were low. <laughs> okay. So if we weren't aiming for amazing, were you just kind of looking at it as something mm. to be endured or sort of if it goes well and there are amazing bits, bonus? Yeah. I mean, I I just kind of thought, well, actually, I was expecting a cesarean section because the other thing was that my son measured enormous right from the start. So we're a very tall family. Um, he was predicted the whole way through to come out between 13 and 14 pounds. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Which is poor perineum. Yes, exactly. And so I said really early on, OK, let's take control of this. I want a cesarean. Mm -hmm. um, and that I found that really comforting, actually. I mean, it wasn't something I was particularly keen on. But I think given all of my different circumstances, it seemed like that would at least let me take back some level of control. Um but there was this weird thing that he, you know, it went right the way through. And then the final scan, because he was having very regular growth spans because he, he scans because he looks so enormous. The final scan, he suddenly came out as an average sized baby. And I was taken into the consultant and she said, so you can't have a cesarean. And so we'll, you know, so we'll take you off that. And that was the end mm -hmm. of it. And I, and I felt completely dismissed because I was like, hang on, don't we even triangulate this last scan? Because we've had... 10 other scans that have shown him coming out huge. Yeah. yeah, who was that child? And one that comes out tiny. Like, So what's what the hell's going on? And that was it. It was, you know, busy department. And we all know how brutal consultants can be sometimes. Um, mm. And so I was, that that was kind of really devastating for me because I didn't have a plan. You know, I didn't, 
I hadn't ima- I hadn't had time to imagine that. And he was born a week later. He was born really early, um, mm-hmm. at thirty seven weeks. So I hadn't had time to adjust before it all kicked off. I I didn't have a bag packed or anything. I was so wow ill prepared and and shocked by the whole thing that um when my waters broke. I, we all just looked at each other. <laughs> oh no, this can't be happening now. This is not okay. <laughs> you know? And was that what happened? That your waters broke at the onset of labour, sort of very, very Hollywood style. I have to say, very. Um... Yeah, well, I had premature rupture of membranes, and oh, okay. uh-huh. the hilarious thing is that um, when he came out, he had one extraordinarily long thumbnail, and we think he just slashed his way out like Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger. Wow, <laughs> I love it. I've never heard of that, but when you think about yeah. it, I mean. Possible. The, all of the people in the room, because there were quite a few by the time, because it took me uh, 44 hours. Um, oh, by the time he you. was born, uh, like I had loads of people in the room and they were all standing around going, my God, I've never seen that. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think he just he ruptured, ruptured his own amniotic sac. Clever um, boy, born genius. He was, he was coming out. He was ready. He was cooked. I was cooked, too. I'd had enough. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I mean, I'm just thinking about that experience of labour and birth at the best of times, even for somebody who's very much kind of on an even keel and very sanguine about these things and very prepared and ready. That experience is overwhelming. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is sort of a peak emotional, spiritual, physical experience all in a wonder, whether it takes 44 hours or 40 minutes. Yeah. Um, So did that take you a while to kind of unpack that? Um, no, because I'd been so pessimistic about it. You know, I my, my natural pessimism. The the only thing I was very sad about was that I'd have really liked a water birth because I'm most at home in the water. That's you know one of my kind of autistic ways of finding comfort is I run myself a bath and I can reset that way. And I kind of thought, okay, well if I can be in water, I will be fine. But of course, after 36 hours, I had to have an epidural, <laughs> so there was no water bath for me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't get anything like a dream birth, but he came out safely. He, you know, we were all okay. Um, and I, I I was okay with it. I, my husband was amazing all the way through. We were just, we were actually both extremely calm about it, but it was Mm -hmm. exhausting. And I did dislocate my hip, which didn't help. <laughs> oh my goodness. Did you? I mean, let's get into that for a minute. Did you know in that moment that no. oh, something really weird has just happened to my hip? Or was it only no. afterwards and you thought, oh, my hip doesn't really feel right? I'd had so much epidural that I had absolutely no <laughs> idea. Um, and I... I, it took me a long time to get the feeling back in my legs as well because I'd been, you know, it take. I, I had a particularly long pushing face as well, um, which uh-huh. apparently is another common thing in my family. We all have a weird hump that we're told about during our birth. We have like an extra weird bump for the baby hump. to get over. Yeah, and our you baby, mean like in your actual pelvis? Yeah, yeah. The the um the person who delivered him said, "You've been doing your pelvic floor exercises too well. You've <laughs> you've got like oh. a." A pelvic hump but my aunt said no I had that too and so did your grandma <laughs> that's interesting we have, a, we have a weird yeah something that stops the baby from finally getting out you know and all of our uh-huh. babies the early photos of them all have really bruised faces poor little things because we're, we're not we're not useful really um but yeah but you did it in the end I mean you say we have this hump that stops our babies getting out but evidently mm. it does not it um, eventually with uh, quite a lot of stitches and a dislocated hip he he was out yeah yeah oh gosh you poor soul battered and bruised the both of you yeah well I so I have uh, I'm hypermobile I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome which is very common in autistic people um so very stretchy connective tissue um and that just makes it really easy for my joints to dislocate so um you know and they it does mean they kind of pop back in quite well as well so I didn't really notice until I started walking around again and I could feel my hip popping in and out of the joint. So I had to have quite a lot of physio to like regain control over it and to keep it in place again. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it wasn't I mean, I guess other people would have been completely traumatized by that. But I just had very low expectations of it. And I I kind of thought, well, we we got through it, the pair of us. But I was I was very, very tired and I just wanted to sleep for a week after I couldn't Mm -hmm. I was completely flattened by it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and having had such a difficult 
experience or a long and tiring experience, do you think in any way that had an impact on getting to know your son? I mean, or did you just mm. sort of think, well, I just have to get on with it and you know, or did you have a rush of love? I mean, everybody's experience is so diverse. Yeah, I did. I felt that a kind of rush of magic. The minute they put him on my stomach, I there was a sense of unreality, actually. It was like, wow, he's real. This is a real thing. I couldn't, I couldn't kind of get a handle on it. It was so amazing. Um, and I did, I, I was totally in love with him right from the start. And I loved, I loved lying on the sofa with him skin to skin with a blanket over both of us and just smelling his head. I just, I just felt like there was a kind of exchange of information going on. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, yeah, I didn't have the problems with bonding that lots of people have or the, the delay that it can feel like. I think I felt that straight away, but I also felt far too exhausted to cope. And I really, I needed a lot of support. I needed my husband to take him so I could just keep sleeping. I was just flattened by how tired I was and my blood pressure was still very high they tried to keep me in hospital even after mm -hmm. that because it my blood pressure didn't go down and I was like look please let me just go home I you know <laughs> my, my blood pressure is probably really high because this is so stressful I just I just need to get away from this place um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I, I think was, many people have that reaction even the staff if I may say yeah, so yes yeah. Yeah. I, yeah I could understand I was kind of slightly panic inducing to everybody because I just didn't I didn't have preeclampsia you mm -hmm. know but I just had very very high blood pressure and I still have high blood pressure now and I have to take blood pressure blood pressure tablets so I think I think it was just a side a side thing that I happened to have really. Um, mm -hmm. And I think everyone was trying to make sense of it in terms of me being pregnant. And I'm not sure that was the case. I think I just have high blood pressure. Yeah. Um, so I was, yeah, I was very glad to get home. I didn't, didn't like it that much. I mean, it sounds like an exhausting, but amazing experience. And I was going to ask you a little bit about your experiences going back to sort of book life of looking at other women's stories and how they've navigated motherhood especially that kind of really challenging early phase mm. um and obviously we uh, kind of did that a little bit together when you edited the best yes. most awful job which yeah. is a lovely anthology of um stories from different women authors about motherhood which is mm. indeed the best most awful job um, <laughs> and you brought together stories from all kinds of different women but there really seemed to be a common thread in these stories of the job being exhausting yeah. and quite isolating and um a need amongst all these different women many of whom never met um to be seen and understood for, for doing that exhausting job mm. um did did you kind of take that from weaving these stories together did you see a kind of universality of of women's experience I did and I and it's such a I I'm so surprised still that it's such a hidden experience I really think there's huge social pressure against telling it like it is and I I think that's recent you know I think that's a mm -hmm. thing we've invented in our generation because I can remember how negative my mum and her friends were allowed to be about it. And I think that was really good for them. You know, they were allowed to see their children as a bit of a hassle sometimes and nobody questioned whether that meant they still loved them. And I actually, one of the really interesting things was commissioning the essays for the anthology and the relief of the writers. They were like, can I, oh God, yeah, I really want to say that. Yes, please. You know, <laughs> And some of them, quite a few of them were like, well, I could write about this, this, this or this. What can yeah. I do? <laughs> I know so many different directions to go with it. I thought, well, I'll just be boringly on on uh, on message and write about vaginas. Vaginas, you know, absolutely. What, what I do. It's your thing. I think it's you do it so well. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Apparently, it is. Somehow, it's become that, much to the dismay of my children. But um, <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Poor yeah, as as you can imagine, the most embarrassing thing for your mother to do is not only work with vaginas, <laughs> but write about them, talk about them all the time I anyway wonderful I'm so glad you do <laughs> thank you Catherine <laughs> but you you just to go back to what you said there about this job of motherhood being hidden mm. uh, and in a sense our body parts and our use of them being hidden as well it's really kind of hiding in plain sight isn't it yeah yes it's everywhere yeah. I mean, everyone has a mother, okay? I mean, <laughs> if, if we're looking for universal experiences, it's it's being in contact with, with some mother or another. And yet we idealise it to such a great extent 
And and I just think that's a huge disservice to what mothers actually do. I mean, I think the wonder of mothers is that they go through all that stuff and still love and still take great care of their children and make enormous sacrifices for them. It doesn't, the fact that they're, you know, not enjoying it all the time doesn't diminish what they do. do. It, it actually in, enlargens what we do. I mean, I just, yeah. I think we've got love so wrong. This idea that there's this perfect love where nothing is challenged or difficult or compromised. That's not what love is. Love is all about understanding that you go on doing it anyway, even though it's really, really hard and sometimes unpleasant and you're sometimes desperate to escape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love really is being there, as you say, even though or in spite of, not not because of. Mm. Um, it's just, it's a miracle we hang around really, isn't it? It is really. I mean, I... <laughs> You know, actually, I mean, going back to, you know, taking my son out of school, I really learned that then because I never had any ambitions to homeschool. I don't, I'm not against it. I'm not particularly for it either. It was just what we needed to do at that time. It was the only way to survive. And there was not a moment when it didn't feel like a massive sacrifice to me. It was a huge financial sacrifice. It was a huge personal sacrifice. It was a huge professional sacrifice. That doesn't mean to say that I didn't go in there and do it with all the kindness I could muster and all the empathy and all the love. But I think it's really important to say that it was it was bloody hard to do it. And I wouldn't wish it on anybody. I think the people that go into it out of, you know, kind of an ideological belief in it, great. But I didn't have that. I was just mm-hmm. doing the thing that I felt like I had to do to look after my child in that moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what we do. Yeah, that's, that is absolutely what we do. And I think that is universal. It's got nothing to do with having autism or being neuronormative or, mm-hmm. or whatever. I think yeah. it's just motherhood, isn't it? I mean, just to digress a little bit to go on to the kind of homeschooling <laughs> thing, because I can relate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Obviously, as I was saying, I had to homeschool or sort of do distance learning with my daughter for a good few months when we were in lockdown earlier this year. And I thought, I was coping pretty well, even Mm. though it was really, really hard for both of us until the very last day that school was technically still in session. Um, (laughs) And she had this assignment, which according to Teams or whatever sort of online portal her school is using, was actually due in at like five o'clock or something. But usually her school day would finish at half past three or actually at 12 on the last day of school, usually. Yeah. And she insisted, (laughs) bless her, she (laughs) insisted on doing this assignment right up until like, you know, 4.58 or something, getting it right, (laughs) needing to hand it in. You know, even on a good day, you're your teachers would have left the building. You're no longer officially in school. And she was like, no, mom, I want to do it right. And I need to hand it in. And it's nearly five o'clock. And I lost it. I mean, really, yeah, this was the 11th hour. I just lost it. And I realized then how difficult the whole thing had been for both of us. You were were looking forward to that ending and you were not getting the ending you needed. I was not. (laughs) I was ready to spit my dummy out and stamp my feet. I was not. And I think that this is the experience that's been hiding in plain sight this year, isn't it really? This is this is mm. the wintering of this year. It's these dark moments that we've all been going through, I think. I have to say, we just ignored all the activities set by school and luckily had the kind of school that were really generous about us doing that. We told them that we were going to do that. We told them that, you know, we just didn't feel like it would work for us to be sitting at a desk and that we were just going to go out and, and do outdoor learning and get on the beach and and do what we could. And they were absolutely fine about it. Luckily, I know not all schools were, mm-hmm. um, but it, it works much better for us. We could just be active and make it up as we went along. We were both very happy with that. It's all about really finding your own way, isn't it? Yeah. And, it, and it having the confidence like... too. I mean, I'm a trained teacher as well. That was my first job. So I kind of feel relaxed about it all really. I, I just mm-hmm. like, yeah, I can... I know how to do it properly and I know how to not do it properly and how to break the rules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was probably not doing it properly, to be honest. Oh, gosh, but um, do you have any kind of parting words of wisdom for all the women and men and parents that are out there maybe listening to this as we go into this wintering period? 
Oh, definitely. I, I mean, just go easy on yourself and go easy on your children. They're so stressed by this anyway. Don't underestimate how revolutionary this has been in their lives and how awful it has been for them. In, uh, and they express it in so many different ways. And gentleness in all things, I think, is the only way to approach this stuff. You know, I don't think anyone gets anywhere by route marching their children through education. That's not what learning is. It's not what an education should be. I just don't think we ever do our children any service by forcing them through horrible parts of life and under awful pressure to achieve. The way we treat ourselves definitely matters. And the words that we use to to talk to ourselves and to each other, th- those words matter as well. And mm. that brings me very tidily to nice my... <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> uh, very tidily to my last question, which is one that I'm asking of all of my guests on this podcast. So uh, obviously the name of the podcast is What the Midwife Said. And just to close all these conversations, and this one has just been delicious, uh, <laughs> I am asking each one of my guests if you can remember something that was said to you by a midwife or maybe by another health professional or or person in your life that really stuck with you, whether for good or for bad, at a kind of pivotal moment in your mothering journey? It's interesting. I can think of a good one and a bad one straight away. They they pop up, don't they? I mm-hmm. I had a period when I was one of my many afternoons in hospital strapped up to various monitors while I was pregnant. <laughs> and I was chatting to the midwife there who, um, you know, and I was sort of saying, well, I know I'm measuring really big. I mean, I measured as if I was having twins the whole way through. Um, and I sort of said, like, I'm, you know, I'm planning a cesarean. And she looked at me and she said, my children all weighed between 11 and 15 pounds and I delivered them all vaginally and walked off. And I just thought, oh, piss off. Sorry, that was, that's, my, that's my big words of wisdom. For that. The way we sometimes talk to women when they're in the middle of really difficult decisions, like, I just think it's brutal sometimes. That is really, brutal. It was, I she mean, was really angry with me. Yeah, yeah. Well, was she willing to loan you her vagina to yeah. deliver your large child? Yeah. I mean, well, what, I, was, what was the point of know. that? They talk about esprit de scalier, you know, that that phrase you think of once the argument's over and you're walking down the stairs. Yeah. And, and mine was, you know, I don't give a toss what you do with your vagina, my friend. I will do what I like with mine. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's a shame because that, you know, those things stick in your mind. That was a very funny afternoon, incidentally, because a few minutes after that, she got a call to say that there was what they thought was a gunman on the loose in the grounds of the hospital. <laughs> Never a dull moment in maternity. Never a dull moment. So there was I strapped to a monitor by a ground floor window and the helicopter starts circling. Oh, to Lord. It turned out to be someone with a toy gun. It was oh, fine. All right then. <laughs> that was, that was <laughs> an interesting okay. moment. Um, but no, I also remember my um, the midwife that I had all the way through my pregnancy um, and I'd had a bit of a crisis a couple of days after bringing my son home where I'd been trying to breastfeed and I felt really sure that nothing was coming out. But I'd people kept saying, no, no, it's only tiny amounts of the time. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. And I woke up one morning and I couldn't rouse him. He was kind of floppy. And I thought, oh, I haven't fed him. And I made a bottle and fed it to him. Mm-hmm. But I fed him so much. <laughs> That he just, um, he then passed out out of just sheer exhaustion and fullness. And I I managed to finally get my midwife on the phone. And she was like, and she just said, you did exactly the right thing. I just want you to know that you made a really wise decision for your child and you made sure your child was fed. And that is so important. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. But she said, never follow the directions on the back of baby milk packets because they always tell them to feed them too much and he's going to sleep for about 12 hours and you're going to be up all night. And I was like, yeah, okay. But she was, it was so kind, you know, because I I just hadn't known what to do. I'd felt really desperate in that moment. And for someone to say you followed your instincts, you made sure your child was fed, there's nothing better you could have done, I just thought was really kind and wonderful. We put ourselves under such pressure over feeding. And I think that means we override our own gut instincts sometimes when things aren't going right, because we're trying to stick to the plan that will make everyone approve of us, as I learned later on. Um, yes. But I, I, will, I never regret that I made that decision in that moment because I needed to make sure that he was safe. And I don't think I was necessarily wrong. 
No, it sounds like you were absolutely right. It sounds like you did the right thing. And one way or the other, he won't remember it anyway. So. He has no idea. <laughs> All is well that ends well. And you're both well and happy. That's a really lovely story, Catherine. It's so nice to speak to you and share all these stories and to hear about your perspective. This is like therapy. You should offer this to everyone. Like we all need to talk about this stuff, I think. Well, this series can run and run. You heard it here first. There's <laughs> <laughs> women in the country lining up to tell you about their birth. <laughs> Please do. Hey, listen, it happens all the time at bus stops, at parties. You would be amazed what people will tell me and I love it all after a certain point you go a bit vagina blind or vulva blind I should say but if you know. if only we all got the opportunity to go vulva blind honestly like we should see more of them like, it would be very healing them. yeah it would we be very to- healing my first like mainstream published book was called The 52 Seductions and it was about the year in which I tried to kind of reclaim my sex life with my husband after we'd been together for 10 years and I, as part of that process, I kind of got to know the the sex community online. And a lot of what they do is absolutely terrifying. But one of the great bonuses of all of that was I saw loads of vaginas that year. Like I saw so many vaginas, you know, like I sort of tried to learn about feminist porn and um, looked at kind of Betty Dodson's work on masturbation or this kind of thing. And I, I, it made me have a better look at mine. And I realized I'd always avoided really even looking at it because I thought it was probably ugly. And I learned to see them as very beautiful. And I wish that process on every woman because I think it's really affirming and I think we should all have it. You're absolutely right. And I mean, I joke about being vagina blind or, or vulva <laughs> blind, really, to, to be more anatomically correct. But I think it's important, actually, in all seriousness, to clarify that when I say that, I don't mean kind of like once you've seen one, you've seen them all. You kind of realize after a while as a midwife that they're all the same in their uniqueness, if you see what I mean. Mm. We've all got one. Um, those of us who were born with one, of course. Um, and they, one. <laughs> they are each as unique as a fingerprint, for example. But likewise, although they're all unique and different and special, they're all vulvas, they're all vaginas, you know, and and there is a sort of universality to that as well. So it becomes at the same time special and totally banal and everyday. Um, And that is really healing, actually. It is. You've you've gone through a process that's actually a huge privilege that most women don't get to do, which is to see yourself in the context of women's bodies and to just see how normal they are, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people say to me, "Ugh, I don't know how you could do that job. I could never look at that all day long. And yes, there are some days when I think really <laughs> no another <more>. one, but, <laughs> but it is a privilege and it's really made me realize, I mean, and not just talking about genitalia, but all, all kinds of bodies and all their shapes and sizes and lumps and bumps that mine isn't really, it is special, but it's not particularly special. Um, and 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 that really is a privilege to be in that position oh Catherine thank you so much it's been such a pleasure we could just run and run I know it's always lovely to chat to you we only get to do it on podcast we'll do it in real life one day thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of what the midwife said hosted by me Leah Hazard and produced by the lovely Steve Bland of Bambi Media I hope you enjoyed my chat with Catherine May as much as I did Please get in touch if you have anything to say about our conversation. Please do remember to review and subscribe to the podcast so that other listeners can find us. Share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag WhatTheMidwifeSaid and tune in next week.